As we come here this morning, open us up to the challenges and convictions that you need to speak into us this morning. Where are the places where people need help around us that we are missing or not seeing? Where are the places in our own lives we need to say thank you? We continue to cultivate an attitude of gratitude and not be grumblers. Lord, speak to us about how blessed that we are and how we need to be more of a blessing to others around us. So now pour into these words you've given to me. Let them be acceptable and pleasing to you. And may they make a difference in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. People of God said together, Amen. So I was in, in case some of you didn't know, I didn't make a big deal about it, but I was in Kansas City this week, Wednesday through Friday, at the Church of the Resurrection, Adam Hamilton's church, of course, one of my mentors over the last 20 years, and uh, got to be able to see the brand new uh, worship area they have. I don't know how many it seats. It seats probably 5,000, 6,000, I don't really know. And, uh, but it's, it's an amazing building. And um, when you first get in there, so those things down below are actually screened. It's one big screen that goes all the way around uh, the, the, the front part of it. But the thing on top is not a screen. That is stained glass. The whole thing is stained glass. So to make that, interestingly enough, that's what it looks like when you're in the balcony. So that little place where all the raised little things are, that's where, the, that's where this area is, right there. So you're like this big in the middle of that. And then on the screens, and then to understand even better how big that really is, when you look at the other pictures from the outside, then you see that that glass in place, that's where the stained glass is, so the light pours into it from behind. They also have lights on it too. And, uh, but the Jesus part of the whole thing, and there's all kinds of things built into it, like symbols from the Christian faith and all that, much like our glass window has like you know, 15 different symbols in it. Nobody, you can't see them all, but there are different ones all throughout it. Same kind of deal. But Jesus' face alone in that stained glass is five feet tall. So think about that. If Jesus' face is five feet tall alone, then that's how big it is. You can't tell that when you're looking at it because the whole room is so massive. But if you put a person up there, you'd be right there just in Jesus' face, and that's it. So it is pretty impressive and a great opportunity to be able to spend time listening to Adam at the Leadership Institute. The last time I went there was in 2001, October. So imagine how that was like less than a month later after September 11th. The plane was empty. People were scared for us to travel, but we did anyways from Brentwood. And the airport was eerily different with armed guards everywhere and everything else that was going on. And uh, it was an interesting experience. But to go back there 19, 18 or 19 years later, uh, it was really neat to see everything and experience that. So we are actually the last flight to get out of Kansas City before lightning and hail shut the airport down and uh, sent some of our friends who had later flights to Minneapolis. And other ones got grounded, never got to leave that night. So we were fortunate to get out and be able to get back. So had some good Kansas City barbecue while I was out there too. They got some good barbecue. Now, nah, Davis says no. Your barbecue is good too, Davis. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you say to your friend, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. Maybe you've had this experience before going to a friend's house late at night. I mean, imagine that's you ringing the doorbell at midnight. The neighborhood's quiet. Streets are still, the sky is dark, and so is your friend's two-story house. 
But still you ring the doorbell not once, but twice, but three times. And you're envisioning what's happening upstairs. Your friend's husband or wife is giving, him a, giving them a kick beneath the blankets. Get up. Somebody's at the door. In every house, that's different. Who has to get up and do that? But somebody has to get up and take care of the knocking, the bringing that's going on down below. The poor guy or girl, one minute sound asleep. The next, you're kicked out of your bed. The doorbell's ringing. Maybe the dog's barking. Shut up, you stupid dog! No one's ever said that in this room, I'm sure. And the next thing you know, you know your friend's not going to like this. The porch light comes on. The door opens up. What in the world are you doing here at midnight, your friend asks. A friend of mine just arrived for a visit. I had nothing for him to eat, you answer. Or suppose maybe they called you out from the bedroom and all they did was open their window up and said, don't bother me, I'm already asleep and my family is already in bed. I can't help you. Slams the window shut. Maybe they won't do it for friendship's sake, if you even have a friend after this. But if you keep keep knocking long enough, they're going to come down and they're going to give you what you need. If only because you are being persistent. I mean, it's come on, Davis. Davis, come on down. Give me what I need. I, I need something. Finally, they, they acquiesce. They invite you in, take you to the pantry. They're all disheveled, you know. They're asleep. You fill a basket with food and you take it home. And your surprised guest doesn't have to go to bed hungry. All because you spoke up on behalf of someone else. Now, this story might seem familiar to you in some way, but you just can't seem to place it. It's the story that Jesus tells in Luke 11, right after he's talking about the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the story, he says this, which you probably are familiar with, but they're connected together. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. See, these are connected together. The story and the scripture you know so well, they are linked You ever wondered what can you do when the challenge is greater than you are? When the hurt is huge? When you feel helpless? Where can you turn when someone needs help? Help that is beyond what you have to offer. Susan's not in here, but Susan's dad's been in the hospital since last Thursday. He's having some struggles and she's trying to balance everything at the same time and be present with her family and be here and be at work. See, Max suggests we turn to this story that I just told you, one of Jesus' most intriguing teachings on prayer, because it is a teaching on prayer. This intercessory prayer at its purest is full of audacity. It's a great word. The pocket prayer is an audacious goal, something bigger than we can achieve on our own. Father, you are good. They need help. Say that with me. They need help. I can't, but you can. Is what you're saying. I, can he- I can't heal them, but God, 
you can. I can't forgive them, but God, you can. Forgiveness can come from out of the heart of God into us to forgive someone else when we can't find that forgiveness ourselves. Healing comes from God when we give ourselves up and say, you know what, I don't have any idea what to do or where to go or what to say. I can't help them, but God, you can. See, it's all focused on God. This prayer is all focused on God. And this prayer gets God's attention. After all, if your cranky friend or neighbor will wake up to help you, how much more will God reach out to help you through whatever it is that you're going through? Or when you ask for someone else to get help, how much more will God do? Amen? God never sleeps. God doesn't get irritated or cranky like us, thank God. Can you imagine if God was like us, you know, all the time? If God was like us all the time, then when you did things wrong, God would be all over you all the time, like, oh my gosh, Ernest, what, what are you doing? Vicky? what is going on with you? Why am I talking this again? What is going on? Kathy, what is happening? I cannot believe we're having this conversation for the 50th time. God would get very cranky at us if God got cranky. God doesn't get like that, right? When you knock on God's door, God responds quickly and fairly. God doesn't try to do the avoidance like on a Saturday afternoon when you're taking a nap and someone's going through your neighborhood trying to sell something. You pretend you're not there, even though they're ringing your doorbell and they're knocking on your door and you're just like, oh, I don't hear anything. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know who that is. I don't know. God's not like that. And think about Jesus. Jesus never refused an intercessory prayer request ever. Ever. He never said, ah, nah, I'm, I'm full up right now. I'm too busy. Peter brought concerns for his sick mother-in-law. The centurion brought a request for his sick servant. Jairus had a sick daughter. A woman from Canaan had a demon-possessed daughter. It even says in Matthew 15, 22 and 23, and we'll be all over the scripture today, and uh, you're welcome to follow along in the app and all the things that are going on or on your screen or Trying your Bible to follow along. He heard so many requests that at times the disciples attempted to turn people away. Now he's full up. He's, he's, he's doing all he can do. He can't help you anymore. Yet Jesus would not let them. It says later in verse 30, Great crowds came to him, bringing him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many more, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. He never grew impatient at the requests. But he did grow impatient at the lack of one. It was a little later in Matthew 17, 17. A father once brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples of Jesus. You might remember the story. And they attempted to heal the boy, but they failed. And when Jesus learned of their failure, he erupted into frustration. This is a great verse because we always see Jesus like, he's like holding little lambs. He's like, oh, look how sweet and nice he is. He would never say anything mean to you at all. He would never be upset about anything. Look at him. He's got a lamb in his hands. He couldn't possibly hurt a fly. That's how we like to see Jesus. Like he has nothing strong to say. The same person who threw over the, t- the money changers' tables, this is not a passive thing. So he says this. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He's not happy. 
Jesus is cranky. He is very cranky for a good reason. It's a big outburst for him. He seems so patient and kind and loving all the time. So any sign of impatience is disconcerting to us. Any sign that he might get angry or be frustrated. But he does it all the time in the Bible. We just like to gloss over that. He's always talking nice to the Pharisees, right? He says the nicest things to them, doesn't he? All the time. Woe, you vipers brood. So what was he so upset about? It was a simple oversight by the disciples. What was it? Simple. They never took the boy to Jesus. That's all. Never took him physically. Never invoked Jesus in trying to get him healed. It's simple. I mean, they just forgot. They forgot they needed to use Jesus to be able to heal the boy. They, they just forgot. They attempted to heal the boy without calling on the Christ. In fact, he had to command them, actually. Bring him here to me. I'm sure that wasn't a nice command either. And then he had some strong words for them after the boy had been healed by him. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, It's because of your unbelief. You don't believe. You're my disciples, yet you don't believe. You see, unbelief is attempting to help others without calling on Jesus. That we try to help other people without calling on Jesus. We don't, we don't do anything. We try to rely on ourselves to take care of whatever it is. And belief is pounding on God's door at midnight. You see the difference? To actively go out and pound on God's door at midnight for someone else. To, to do whatever it takes to present people to Jesus. What the disciples were supposed to be doing. And they had failed. We saw something similar with Moses when he was at Sinai. When God saw the golden calf people had formed, God was not happy and was ready to wipe out Israel. God was very cranky that day. Very cranky. Like, I'm tired of you. I have saved you and you are still no good. I want to wipe you out right now. All of you. I don't want to deal with you anymore. They've been shown so many ways to be for believe. I mean, they saw the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea parting. How do you forget walking across dry land where there once was a, a body of water where the water is piled up to one side or both sides or whatever version you want to look at? And how do you possibly forget that kind of deliverance in your life? Would you forget about the Red Sea being parted to let you walk across the land? They had eaten manna from heaven. Food literally rained down from the sky into their hands on the ground so they could eat and they could live. But now they were dancing in front of a statue they thought was real more than the God who had saved them. So God was a little bit cranky about this. So what happened when they were clearly going to be toast? Well, their only hope was Moses. Their over-the-hill leader. If Moses had any clout, this is the time he needed to use it, and he did. Moses begged the Lord his God and said this, Lord, don't let your anger destroy your people whom you brought out of Egypt with your great power and strength. Exodus 32, 12. You see, Moses was very passionate about his people even when they weren't doing the right thing. 
I mean, if I had been Moses and I came down and they're dancing around the golden calf and I spent all my time up there trying to get everything straightened out, I might have gone, okay, God, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Wipe them out now. I am sick and tired of these complainers and these people who don't listen. I don't want to do this anymore. Wipe them out so I can go home. That's not what Moses did. He was passionate about them even when they were disobeying God, even when they had broken every rule, even when they weren't being the people they were supposed to be. Moses stands up for them and intercedes in their behalf. And how did God react after he prayed and bargained for him? This is the best part, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind, changed his mind and did not destroy the people as he had said he might. Moses changed God's mind. That's the promise of prayer, amen? That we can actually change God's mind. I mean, those that will of God will be sovereign, but the implication of God's will is not. But how it's going to work itself out. God does not change God's character and purpose, but God does alter God's strategy because of the appeal of God's children. That is it. People are like, well, I don't, there's no reason to pray. It's already going to happen the way it's going to happen anyways, and nothing's going to change if I pray. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. Prayer can change the outcome of things. In other words, we do not change God's intention, but we can influence God's actions. Intercessory prayer isn't rocket science. It's the acknowledging our inability and God's ability. It's acknowledging our inability and acknowledging God's ability. We can't do anything. So we need to pray because we know we can't do anything. We accept that. We know it. We understand it. And we're giving it over to you, God, because we know you can do everything. See, we come with empty hands, but high hopes. Why? Things like Ephesians 3.20, which says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Amen? That our God's above and beyond everything. We can't even imagine what God can do. Or Philippians 4.19, He will supply all our needs according to His riches. Remember when we started Imagine two and a half years ago now, almost getting into our third year in just a couple of months. We had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. It's easy to look back on it and go, oh, well, look, it all worked out the way it's supposed to work out. It is not that same thing when you're starting out. And I remember doing one of our leadership things that we were having that Nisla Brothers, she said a prayer that I'll never forget. She said this prayer. What she said was, she said, God, I thank you for what you have already done and your faithfulness. She prayed a prayer that I would have prayed at the end of the thing. She prayed at the very beginning of it because it had already happened. That God was already being faithful. That God had already done it. We're just now going to live into it over that time. And so over the last two and a half years, then we've lived in reducing the debt that we had almost a million dollars to now right around 500000 So that means in two and a half years, 50% of the debt we had when we started is gone. If that's not amazing to you and you're not awake for this, then I'll come back to you. If you want to clap for that, though, then that's okay for you, too. I don't think that it's very often that a church pays off 50% of their debt in two years. 
2.1 million when I got here before we sold the property. It was exactly one year ago during September in which the miracle of the minibus finally came to fruition. That began in July, but it wasn't until September when we got the grant and until everything started to move in, in motion. That was also a prayerful dream. And there are all kinds of stories we told about how God, God's miracle had happened during those moments. And I was looking back through those bulletins when I got ready for this month and we got a one-year anniversary from the uh, Golden Cross Foundation to fill out the form. How has it changed our lives over the last year? Lots of ways that we forget. So we live into a reality and we forget what the reality was before. The older adult should never forget about riding, riding the van when they decide to get sideswiped. If you forget that part, then the bus loses its power. You see, you can't forget where we are we move forward into something else, when all this debt is paid off, we can't forget where we were. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves there again in one way or another. We will lose the power of what that really means. It was exactly four years ago in September that I went before the city, along with several other of you, to go down there and to read something and try to convince them to rezone the property so we could build a building in the first place. That is something I never want to do again. I was sweating to death that night. But God was faithful. There were a lot of prayers going up, a lot of places across the entire... And I felt those when I stood before that group. You see, Max says that nothing pleases Jesus as much as being audaciously trusted. Amen? Nothing pleases Jesus as audaciously being trusted. BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. The whole idea is a goal you cannot achieve on your own or through your own efforts. It must be through God's efforts. If the goal is that you can do it yourself, that's not a goal for God. That's a goal for humanity. If you can look at the goal and get really scared about it and fearful and worried and have no idea how you're going to do it, that's a God goal. It is beyond our ability to do it, then that's when God can step in and say, you don't have this, but I do. I can help you through this. I can do this. Go, so go ahead and make that midnight knock. You see, stand up on behalf of those you love. But also, step up on behalf of those that you don't love. So that's the hard part. It, it's really easy to ask for help for those who we, don't lo- we do love. We care about, you know, they're friends of our family, they're our family, whatever else. But you also have to stand up for those on behalf you do not love. Matthew 5.44, pray for those who hurt you. Is there any exceptions? Do you see any buts or accept? Jesus says these words, pray for those who hurt you. The quickest way to douse the fire of anger, Max says, with a bucket of prayer. Rather ranting or raving or seeking revenge, pray. Jesus did this. When hanging on the cross, he interceded for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. If you and I were hanging on that cross and being derided by the priests and people along the road and the Roman citizens and soldiers, they're making all kinds of statements about you and everything else, you might be more likely or I to say, I hope you get yours. Don't worry. You'll be taken care of. That's not what Jesus did. To his very enemies. Even Jesus left his enemies in God's 
hands. Shouldn't we do the same? I mean, it's kind of like of all the ways for being in the church, it is when you, you're never more like Jesus than when you pray for others. You're never more like Jesus when you pray for others. Not just people that you like, people that you don't. People you don't agree with. Situations that you would never put yourself in. In Memphis, uh, yesterday they had a gay pride parade. We have that in Nashville too and that sort of thing. And I began to think about the fact is whether you agree or don't agree, why isn't the church there, just every church? Why, whether you love the people that you're talking about or whether you don't know the people you're talking about or dislike people you're talking about, how is the difference that somehow we would be present with them to love them from where they are at as we begin to move them to something else if that's the case? Why? Because we're afraid that we'd be looked at very differently. We'd be afraid of going down there and somehow somebody might think, well, I'm for that. And yet, that's where Jesus would be. When the prostitutes gathered together, Jesus would be in the midst of them, gathering together, because that's where he was. He didn't have to agree with them or be present with them and where they were at. He never said anything about that, the tax collectors or anything. He never said, you know what, you're the best people in the world, I agree with you. He never said anything about that. But he loved people where they were. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He was present. There was a 16-year-old boy in Coffee County a couple of days ago who came out to be bisexual and his friends found out about it, posted it on Twitter and everything else. He killed himself before the next day in school so he went to go back to school and face all the people. Where's the church in that? It doesn't matter whether you agree or not. It's not about agreement. But where's the church? Are you going to tell the hurting family that you're going to tell them, you know what, you know, your son was in sin and your son was evil and the fact is, you know, I don't believe in your son's thing so sorry you lost him. Is that how you'd react to the family no matter what you believed? Is that how Christians would? No. We have a hard time separating acceptance from the fact of loving people where they are even when we disagree with them. I've always talked about how to be, not be the gatekeepers of grace. <coughs> not our job. For progressives and centrists and conservative traditionals to be involved in the same place, for liberals and for conservatives and for political Democrats and political Republicans and independents to be in the same place, even though we don't agree with each other, that has to be where the church is. It can't be in that place of doing that. That has nothing to do with what your beliefs are. It has everything to do with the fact is the baseline, bottom part of it is is that we have to pray for one another whether we agree or disagree, whether we love or don't love. There is no exception. Amen? Pray for those you love. Pray for those you don't. Pray for this hurting world. Nobody wants a 16-year-old to die. And nobody wants anybody to feel unloved. Our job is to love first. Doesn't mean our convictions go away. I found that out a lot this week. I never judged, I never moved from my convictions. But I loved on people who were hurting and broken and in places where they felt left out of the community. A hug doesn't change who I am, but it can certainly change who they are. And that all leads to thank you. 
Max suggests you alphabetize your blessings. To write out literally A through Z and figure out words or thoughts or phrases that go with every single one of those letters. I'll give you a free spot for that. For J, you can put Jesus. Now you got one. You can work out the rest of them around it. Take some time doing that because if you do that, you'll begin very quickly to figure out what your blessings are. Count your many blessings one by one, then write them down. Spend some time actually doing that, not giving lip service to that. You know that the many psalms in psalms are actually acrostics, which are written using every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It doesn't work out in English, but they are every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Thanks. Just the word lifts our spirits to be thanked, to say thanks, to celebrate a gift or someone or something. It's, it's a big deal to say thanks. It's a big deal to say please. In our house, things won't happen unless you say please. I can tell Hannah five times to do something, and until I remember the fact is I haven't said please, she's going to stay there and look at me. I'm going to get madder and madder until I realize what's just happened, which is I haven't honored you by even asking you and by thanking you and by offering a please. It's ingrained in us. It's easy to not be ingrained in us. We can bark out orders like nobody's business. And we can not be thankful for many things. I always try to say thanks for everything that someone does for me, small or large. So it becomes a natural habit just to say thanks. You can never say thanks enough, amen? Or too many times, right? Max says, gratitude is a dialysis of sorts. It flushes the self-pity out of our systems. In Scripture, the idea of giving thanks is not a suggestion or recommendation. It's a command. It carries the same weight as love your neighbor or serve the poor. Don't think so? More than a hundred times it is given as an imperative, for example. Give thanks in all circumstances. Is that a suggestion? It's a command, imperative. Give thanks in all things. The Bible commands us to be thankful And here's why. Because ingratitude is the original sin. Think about it. Ingratitude is the original sin. Adam and Eve had a million reasons to give thanks in the garden. I mean, God found Eden so delightful, He strolled through it in the cool of the day. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been to on earth in your own life and then multiply it. And then imagine somebody standing next to you and saying, this place is no good. This is not beautiful. It's lacking this and this and this. And how could you possibly think this is a beautiful place? And you'd be so offended because the, the place you held so dear was not important to them. But then the serpent came. No, it wasn't a snake. There is no snake imagery whatsoever in this passage. Even Max in his book says snake. There's no snake. Serpent, serpent, serpent. We just think of a snake because that's what we know. It does not say that's what it is. And the serpent raised a question and brought doubt about the forbidden tree. All these other trees you can eat from, but this tree, you can't touch it. It's forbidden. So let's focus on the one tree you can eat instead of all the other trees that you can't. Eat it, he hissed. Know what it's like to be God. Forget everything else that's good. 
just like that, Eden wasn't enough. Been enough before. They were so happy. Everything was good until the serpent talked to them. And now it wasn't enough. Don't we always want what we don't have? No matter what it is, whether it's material things or time or whatever it is, whatever we, whatever we really want and we don't have. What if gratitude had won the day? What if they both had said no way? If you choose gratitude, would your world be different? They're still hissing today. Don't you want more? Faster phones when the old one doesn't work so well. You know, it's only $1,000, $40 a month. We'll just get a new phone. I've only had it for two years, but it's so slow. I just don't like it anymore. I want something new. More gigabytes, more RAM, more screen size. 55 inches is so small now, I can't even see the nose hairs on the players. i got to be able to see that in order to enjoy the game. More legroom in your car, 20% more of whatever. The box says 20% more, it's a better bargain. 20% more. Well, that's great. Go to Sam's, I need 14 gallons of maple syrup to last me through because I need to have that for the rest of my life. That's how I need to buy it in quantities that large. I need more. Everything you ever bought on TV, at the end of it, it says, but wait, there's more. Free shipping, double your order. Like you need two things of the one thing you didn't need in the first place, now you need two of them. Instead of give thanks in everything, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in everything. In everything? Yeah, in trouble, in the hospital, in a fix, in a mess, in distress, in everything. Even interruptions. Jesus was thankful for interruptions. When 5,000 people interrupted his planned retreat, he took them out to lunch. I may not have been so gracious. I don't like interruptions. But most of the time I find God in those interruptions more than the plan that I was planning. Amen? That's how God works. They told people to sit down on the grass, took the five loaves, the two fish, looked to heaven, and he did what? Thanked God for the food. He was thankful when Mary interrupted the party with perfume. When the disciples returned from their first mission trip, he rejoiced and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's always thanking. You see, nothing silences grumps like gratitude. Nothing silences grumps like gratitude. And all the grumps in the room are like this now. He just called me a grump, but I don't like that in the first place. Well, you just owned yourself in the moment you did that when I said that. If that offended you, you're the grump it's talking about. I'm just being honest with you. Nothing silences grumps like gratitude. I've got nothing to be grateful for. Really? Let's sit down and make a list. Because I can guarantee you I can find something you need to be grateful for in your life. Like the fact you're still living right now at this moment in time. We all have read about the grumbling Israelites. And we're always like, oh, they're always grumbling. I don't like them at all. Well, the great part with the Israelites is they're us. They are no different thousands of years ago. These people are the same kinds of people that we deal with every single day. Don't believe me? They began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? And we hate this horrible manna. Have they forgotten God's deliverance? 
It's like the golden calf all over again. Max says the Red Sea became the red carpet. Manna fell like silver dollars out of heaven. Moses was a superhero. They were so grateful at first. But with the passage of time, ingratitude took over. And that's all it takes. Time to forget gratitude. And so they bellyate. That's a great word, bellyate. You might know that part of the story, maybe not this last part, though. We know that God loves God's children's sermons, a kind of object lessons for God's people so much. So what God does is, here's your object lesson. I'm going to release thousands of snakes into your camp. Who likes snakes? Nobody, right? Who doesn't like snakes? Who hates snakes? Raise your hand. You and Indiana Jones, gotcha. God unleashes snakes into their camp. Scaled snakes slid through their tents with toxic fangs, just like Eden. The symbolism is inseparable. Max says, ingratitude is a devil's brew. It will kill you. Numbers 21.6, many were bitten and died, and the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. So what was the cure? The Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake, attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. The cure for the attitude of ingratitude is to look up and see what God has done in our lives. Amen? That's how you cure ingratitude. God's solution to any challenge is simply this, a grateful spirit. No mist is so thick the sunlight cannot penetrate it and cannot burn it away. In the close, Max tells a story about a lawyer who won a case for his client. I love this story. I hope it's really true. The two men celebrate a nice dinner. At the end of the meal, the client hands the lawyer a fine Moroccan leather wallet. Please accept this as a token of my appreciation for all you've done. And the lawyer resisted and said, No, I can't settle for a wallet. I need my $500 fee. The client looked at the lawyer and shrugged. Whatever you say. He opened the wallet and he extracted two $500 bills from it and took one out and folded it up and put it back in his pocket, left the other one in the wallet, closed the wallet up, and then handed it back to the lawyer. Don't be too quick to assess God's gifts for you because you think somehow you know better. Thank God. Jesus is. The economy is not in charge. Jesus is. The grumpy neighbor doesn't run the world. Jesus does. Just speak the word, Jesus. Pray. Since God works, prayer works. Since God is good, Prayer is good. Since you matter to God, your prayers and my prayers, they all matter in heaven. You're never without hope because you've never been without prayer. Amen? And on the occasions you find yourself not knowing what to pray, I hope you will take up that pocket prayer. Or pray it every day and keep using it after these 40 days are over with after the four-by-four challenge becomes something as a part of the book. And so I want to say the prayer one last time together as we gather here. Try to close your eyes and say it, but if you can't, it'll be on the screen. But I hope this prayer becomes a vital part of your life internally. Let's say it together. Father, you are good. I need help. 
Heal me and forgive me. They need help. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. I hope that this last four weeks has been life-changing and that somehow you'll use this going forward to become a part of your regular prayer life. At 12.30, you're going to receive a text that's going to come out that's going to have a link to your prayer, finding your prayer strength. There's a whole little thing you can take, and each one of these parts links up to four prayer strengths, and each one of us has a prayer strength. And it'll give you more information about how you can strengthen that prayer strength and also help to the other ones as well. Just click on it. It's a PDF. You're going to have to do it on a computer or do it on your phone and write it down. I didn't design it, but that's what it is. So I hope that you will find some way to continue to be about this. On Wednesday night, my class will continue because we're just slow. And we'll keep going on and doing this for a while. So if you want some more encouragement, come be a part of us. Barbara's class may be actually on time and will be finishing up here soon. But you're welcome to join us on Wednesday nights for the duration as we finish this up in a couple more weeks. Prayer is everything. Don't take it for granted. People around us need help. There are lots of ways we can do that. When we say we're going to pray for someone, let's knock on the door at midnight. Ray Hamilton. I'm here for Ray Hamilton. I want him to know that I am praying for him to get better right now. The other folks in your life, you need to lift them up hard and heavy. Jim Davenport, we are praying for you right now. We want you out of the hospital. We want you healthy. We want you back at your house. That's the kind of prayers we need to say for everyone in our lives. Amen. So as we close our service this morning with the words of our last hymn, I encourage you to think about all the ways in which prayer needs to be involved in your life and who you are. To know that God's with us all the time. And to let people around us know that God's with them all the time. Because sometimes when you're in the midst of the hard times, it is so easy to forget that. So let's stand and sing through it all, number 507, as we think about what it means that God will be with us through it all and with those around us through it all.
sing another upon God in prayer. Think about those who need God the most in your life. Go knock on the door at midnight. Tell God every day, thank you. Be an attitude of gratitude. Don't let it slip because once you let it slip, it is too easy to grumble. We've all been there. Stay in the attitude of gratitude. Be thankful and God will see you through it all. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.